Welcome to A Path Home. This is the podcast where we demystify the tasks related to after-death care through hearing stories from people who have cared for their own deceased loved ones at home. I'm your host, Sarah Cruz. I'm the director of Heartland Prairie Cemetery, a home funeral guide, death educator, and a member of the National Home Funeral Alliance. So I'm here with Lauren Carroll, my friend who is a funeral director in Colorado, and we met serving together on the board of directors of the National Home Funeral Alliance several years ago. Recently, you helped my family when we were doing a home funeral for my dad in Denver. Um, I was able to give you a call and, and knowing what you know about how the whole system works, you were able to file the death certificate for us and also got us a transit permit because we were bringing his body back here to Kansas, driving it ourselves in our family car to the cemetery here in in Kansas. So that was a a big help. So today's episode, I really want to, you know, I'm I'm just thinking that we're going to talk about home funeral basics, Mm -hmm. essentially, and that'll be some of the practical considerations and some of the legal requirements. But before we get into that, Lauren, I would love it if you could just describe for me a little bit of your own path and what you're doing today in Colorado as a uh, death educator and home funeral advocate. So I started off in my hometown of California, just working in a funeral home, typing death certificates, kind of getting an idea of what it was like. And then when I moved to Colorado, um, I was working at a Starbucks and the same two funeral directors would come in and they asked if I would want to be a funeral director and do this here. But I found out they worked for SCI or Dignity Memorial. And I worked for- That's a big corporation that has bought up a bunch of funeral homes across the country. Yeah, Sometimes they leave the family name on there, but it's really, you're working for a huge corporation when you start working for an SCI funeral. Exactly. Home. I think when people think of that multi-billion dollar corporate funeral, that's what they're thinking of are those, the Dignity Memorial funeral homes, because they're everywhere. Yeah. And it really is an industry. It is. Home. It's a corporate industry, 100%. And so I took the job because I love helping families. I love the idea of creating, you know, celebrations and memories for these families during grief. So I took the job and it was very different kind of training that I went through. It was very sales oriented. And I ended up working there for three years And in my third year, I was pregnant and I also saw the movie, A Family Undertaking. And it was watching that film that like, it blew my mind because I was a funeral director and I had no idea that this was even a possibility. One of my recent guests mentioned that documentary and and what an eye opener it was. And so I love that as a funeral director, you saw that and went, oh, there actually is another possibility here. Yeah. And I think it was really hard for me as a funeral director to go, wow, look at what these families are doing. Look how beautiful this is. I had I had no idea that they could do this. So what a disservice I've been doing as a funeral director by not offering all the options. So I went back to work at the traditional funeral home with my new ideas of no embalming and doing it all at home. And my relationship with SCI, I think, lasted only four more months after that. (laughs) 
which it worked out well because then I had my son. And when he was three months old, I took my first home funeral workshop. It was through Natural Transitions with Karen Van Buren. And it in Boulder, Colorado. In Boulder, Colorado. And it changed my life. I went with my mom and I said, nice. Yeah, I want to tell everybody about this. I'm I'm not going to be a funeral director anymore. I am going to educate on home funerals and lead the family so that they know that they can do it and I'm there to help if they need it. And so I spent up until two years ago holding home funeral workshops, um, supporting families if they needed it. There was only one home funeral that I did that I really had to do hands-on support the whole time. And it was because it was just one woman who was doing this for her husband. And so she needed the extra support. But what I really love is giving the families all the tools so that they don't need my hands-on support. They feel comfortable to do it themselves. Because that's where the healing takes place is when the family does it and they have that hands-on experience and they get that time and space to be a family together. Absolutely. So that was pretty much, you know, what I wanted to do. During that time of educating, though, I met a lot of people in my community, including a funeral director who was extremely traditional and later opened up the funeral home that helped your family. And it was the only funeral home I felt that I could ever work at as a funeral director again, because we did know embalming, we did the natural burials. And I think, I think that there is a future there for those more traditional funeral homes to kind of have a hybrid option where you do offer support for home funerals, but you also have that extra support of, well, we'll take care of transportation and the paperwork and that kind of thing. Some of those details might be impractical for a family to try to do all themselves. Right. You know, it is very helpful if you can find a funeral home like that one that would be willing to um, assist just in the ways that the family is, is needing. Yeah. With a home funeral, technically you can do them in any state. There's 10 states that require some sort of funeral home assistance, whether that's just the transportation or the paperwork. You know, I'm wondering if it's nine. Is it nine? I think, I think it might be nine now. Okay. I couldn't remember. It was 10, but then there was a thing with, Alabama that shifted. Okay. If you're in one of those states, like I said, you can still have a home funeral. You just need to reach out to a funeral home that will support that. And I think the only funeral homes that don't support that are just uneducated. And so I always would tell my families, if you run into a problem, call me and I'll talk to them <laughs> and tell them that this is this is always a choice and always an option for families. And you know, embalming's never required by law. That's a place that a lot of funeral homes go, uh-uh, no, that's not safe. Or, oh, the families can't handle that. And then once I kind of say, well, you know, the CDC says that there's no risk about being around an unembalmed body and that the Federal Trade Commission in 1984 even made it a law that embalming's not required. So what's your grounds, you know? Yeah. Good. Yeah, that's a learning moment for them. Yeah, it is. And I think it's hard because there are very traditional guidelines that they follow. But the thing is, is we've changed as a society. So those traditions should change too. And I do think that we are going more to that family-focused, community-based work because it's what works. 
It's what we used to do before there were the traditional funeral homes. And I think there is this gap in between where funeral homes kind of stepped up, took over, could charge whatever they want. You know, some families are still paying the seven to $10,000 for a traditional funeral. And I almost think it's because they don't really know that there's other options because these funeral homes don't even know that there's other options. Just like I was a funeral director who didn't know there was other options. So I'm not saying all funeral homes are the bad guys or going to take advantage of you, but there's a lot of education for just the general public, but really for funeral homes and funeral directors as well, because I do think that there can be a relationship between home funeral families and home funeral guides and the local funeral homes, because getting a death certificate and getting a permit for transportation, burial, cremation, natural organic reduction, or alkaline hydrolysis. Those are all the disposition options that you just listed. Technically, Colorado and Washington are the only ones right now that have natural organic reduction, but I think California also legalized it, and I have a feeling it's going to become an option in more and more states. Yeah. Otherwise known as human composting. composting. Mm -hmm. A funeral home is much more convenient to do the paperwork for a disposition and for the death certificate. And it's because a lot of states and cities now have all their death certificates through an electronic death registry. And to even be part of that system with the state, you have to get you know, a registration number, you have to give a photo ID and all this kind of stuff. So back in the olden days, death certificates were still paper. You could still do death certificates by hand. You could take it into the office and have the doctor sign it. But now it's mostly done electronically. Even the doctors are on there electronically so they can sign. You know, it's very convenient, but it's not convenient for families who are only doing this one time. And so even there, it's a good idea to maybe just reach out to your local funeral home, especially if you want to be a home funeral guide. It's really important to kind of make those relationships, not necessarily to say like, oh, I'm coming in to change the way things are and I'm going to put you out of business. It's more of just having somebody as a backup plan and having somebody to kind of do the tedious stuff like the paperwork. And I do think funeral homes are open to that. And I want to mention that filing a death certificate is a legal requirement in every state. And some of the guidelines around that are different. Like you said, they're all electronic now. It's all through this EDRS, Electronic Death Registration System. But some need to be filed in three days. In some states, you get five days. In some states, it's either, you know, I think it falls somewhere between two and seven days. But Um, It's important that you know that and where they're filed. Like, for instance, in the state of Kansas, it's all through the one office of vital statistics in the capital, Topeka. You can't just go down to your local city hall and file it there. Mm -hmm. And in some states, a transit or transport permit is also required, but not in every state. In some states, you need to get certification in order to be cremated, but not in every state. The main thing is that in every state, you have to file a death certificate. Yeah. So here in Colorado, you have to have a signed and certified death certificate before you even get that permit. 
So the death certificate is always step number one. So depending on whatever you want, even if it's to transport a body to another state, we still have to have a signed death certificate in Colorado first. And there, most states are like that. I think there are a few exceptions, but getting that death certificate filed, you can't do anything. So if it does take seven days to file that death certificate, that means you can't do a cremation or burial during that time. So it's really important to kind of think about that part if you do plan on having a home funeral to just kind of plan ahead. And there's a lot of information out there of like, what is the information required for a death certificate? So that's a really good idea to have that information on hand before. Um, so you're ready. Can you just go over some of the stuff that is on a death certificate so people will know how to be prepared? Yes. So of course, you're going to need their full name, date of birth, social security number, the parents' names, including the mother's maiden last name. If they were married, we would need the spouse's maiden last name as well. Um, and occupation and education. Those are kind of the general must-haves for a death certificate. Do you need place of birth? Oh, yeah. You need all the vital statistics of the person. So where were they born? Who were their parents? Were they married? How much education did they have? What job did they do? A lot of people are retired by the time they come to me, but the state doesn't allow for retired. So you do have to put some sort of occupation um, what? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're not allowed to put retired. So even if you've been retired for 35 years, and a lot of families are like, my dad hasn't worked since 1970. I'm like, okay, well, what did he do then? Or if you know, they've had multiple jobs, you know, they didn't have a career, but they just did a lot of things. I, I always tell families, pick your favorite. <laughs> the state just requires this. It's not anything that's going to affect anything in the long run. It's just their vital statistic information that they require. And then, of course, the second half of a death certificate is time of death, cause of death, the doctor's information. But that information gets filled out by the physician, not by the family. Exactly. And in fact, it's usually the medical authorities or like the hospice that is going to initiate the death certificate being filed or the medical examiner, the coroner, depending on the circumstances of the death. Yeah. I mean, if, if you could choose an ideal death for a home funeral, it would be hospice care in the home because there, we already know what the cause of death is going to be. That's why you're on hospice care. Typically Um, you already have a relationship with the doctor and the hospice nurse is going to take that information and start the process with the doctor for the family. But, you know, that's not always the case. The hospice is ideal. Absolutely. And you've mentioned a couple of things about planning, and I want to stress the importance of that. If at all you have the time, it's great to communicate with anyone who might be involved either directly or indirectly so that people know your plans and are aware of what you're intending to do when the person dies. And so that's, you know, reaching out to vital statistics in advance, you know, finding out what's required, communicating with with the funeral director, with the crematory, with the cemetery. Often the crematory is the same as the whatever funeral director you're using, but whether you can pick up a box in advance, you know, to have that in the home to decorate and and have that be part of the home funeral. Yeah, exactly. And if you're in one of those more restrictive states, 
it's always a good idea to find out what's the extra steps that you're going to need to take. Is it that you need to have um, the funeral home do the transportation? So if that's true, you know, you need to reach out to the funeral home and say, we're planning on having a burial at this cemetery on this date. What would the transportation costs be? Or you could be in a state like Colorado where you can pretty much do everything on your own, but there's that convenience that I talked about of maybe having a funeral home take care of the death certificate and the permit um, ahead of time. And I think I love the idea of having families decorate the cardboard container if that's what they're choosing for a cremation or a natural burial. And most funeral homes are going to be able to help with that. If you just call and say, I'd like to purchase this directly from you. You know, the funeral home doesn't have to be involved, but it's easy to at least get that part started ahead of time. I recently talked to uh, a family who had purchased a wooden coffin for a mausoleum burial from a funeral home and brought it into the home for the home funeral. And they painted the wooden coffin. And I love that. Yeah. And even a shroud. Families can decorate yeah. the shroud with flowers or keepsakes or notes. I mean, that's that's a perk of having a home funeral is you get to make it your own. Mm-hmm. I don't know of any funeral homes that invite families in to decorate a casket for a day. <laughs> right, but that's a freedom right. that you have at home. So That's right. So yeah, that moves us nicely into some of the uh, more practical considerations of of what it is to have a home funeral. I know a lot of people are curious about body care and about cooling. Can you talk a little bit about rigor mortis? One thing I always start with is everybody's body is different. We die differently. We have different diseases that end to the end of our life. And so there's going to be kind of this general care, but then there there may be some slight exceptions sometimes. So for example, rigor mortis, that's going to happen to everybody. And typically it happens between one to six hours after death, which seems like, oh, okay, do we need to do this really fast or do we have some time? And again, it just kind of depends. But typically what I tell families is in that first hour after death, this is when we want to do the body care if possible. If you have to wait for family, we can make it work. And there's ways to massage the rigor mortis out of the body. And I'll talk about that in just a moment. But by law, you have 24 hours after death before you need to do embalming, refrigeration, or ice to cool the body. But I typically don't want to wait that long because decomposition happens relatively soon after death. And that's what leads to rigor mortis. So if you know that that's going to happen within an hour to six hours after death. And one of the things that I have heard before, and I wonder if you can confirm this or, or tell me a little bit more about it, is that rigor mortis will set in within those one to six hours, as you described, but that eventually it goes away. Is that accurate? That's correct. It will. It actually can come and go and come again. Um, and so I still recommend that if people want to do any dressing or that kind of thing to try and do it before rigor mortis sets in because it makes everything much more difficult. It will go away, but it's kind of one of those things where you don't know exactly what the body is going to do or how it's going to react. So unless somebody's there with the body 24 seven, maybe you may not know that moment when the rigor mortis 
is soft enough that you can dress them. So, so typically what I like to do is for a home funeral, you have to have ice because you're not going to be putting them in a refrigeration unit or doing embalming. Right. And cooling the body is what slows decomposition right. from happening. And so when you say ice, we're, we're not talking about like bags of ice that are going to melt. Right. I typically, there's, there's a few different options. I've even had families use like the ice packs that you would put in your kids' lunches, just a whole bunch mm-hmm. of them. There's mm-hmm. techni ice, there's dry ice. I used to love dry ice until I learned about some more options. And the reason that I don't use dry ice anymore is because there is like a gas. You can't touch the dry ice or you'll, you know, burn yourself really badly. I would say it keeps the body the coldest. That would be the the perk of it. And so if you live somewhere really hot or it's the summertime, I would recommend dry ice, but you have to keep in mind that you need to keep a window open. Um, yeah. And you need to be very cautious handling it. And you have to be extremely cautious handling it. And you have to break it up with a hammer, wear heavy duty gloves. There's just a lot of extra. And so mm-hmm. with the other ice options, it's easier because you can cut it down to size, kind of wrap it around the body. Now ice needs to go around the midsection. That's the most important part because that's where decomposition starts in your gut. Mm-hmm. All that, all that healthy gut flora that you took care of is also the ones that are going to start eating you. (laughs) It's going to start breaking down your body, right? And so that's to slow that down. That's why we put ice there, you know, to get that right on the torso where all of our internal organs are. Yes. Yep. And so if somebody's really small and petite, you only need to do one side. If somebody's larger or if they have edema, which is like liquid, um, that you'll see on the skin. It's almost, I don't know how to explain it. It's almost like sweat. It's almost like the body is sweating in a way. Then I would put more ice, put it on the top of the body and underneath the body. Okay. So we use the ice and then we set the features. So when somebody dies, typically their eyes and mouth might be open. And some people aren't comfortable with that because we've had this image for so long that, you know, when somebody dies, their eyes are closed, their mouth is closed, their hands are placed over them. And not a lot of people actually die that way. For closing the eyes, I like to just use wet cotton balls because they have enough weight to keep the eyes closed. I know rice packs and like the yoga. um, Yeah, the iPads. Mm hmm. Those are great too. I just like things that I can either recycle or dispose. You can also make like a sack or a sock with some rice rice or something in it. And something very simple just to have enough weight to keep those eyelids down. Yeah. And and then you can remove those a couple of hours later and generally the eyes stay closed. Right. And the reason we want to set those features now is because rigor mortis is going to set in. So if those, those are closed and the rigor mortis sets in, then they're going to most likely stay closed and you're not going to have to keep repeating this process. Um, right. And in reference to the eyes, the reason people used coins is, you know, it paid the boatman to take you, but it also kept the eyelids closed because there was that weight to it. Whether you're using, oh, I didn't realize that it also paid the boatman to take you across the the river. Yeah, huh? yep, 
it was your your fee to go to the other side. <laughs> That's so cool. But there's a lot of common sense uses for that as well. So if you are a traditionalist, you know, put some half dollar coins on their eyes too. <laughs> yeah. You want something heavier than a quarter. Right. And then to to close the mouth, there's a few different options. Some people like to use a scarf, you know, kind of like you maybe would have seen in the olden days when somebody has a toothache that they would tie the scarf around their head and tie it on the top with a bow. But that'll keep the jaw shut. Um, I like to use a rolled up towel. And so you would just kind of gently place the head facing down onto the towel so that the jaw stays closed. So you're putting the rolled up towel under, like on the neck Mm -hmm. and underneath the jaw pushing against it. Correct. So you can, you're not tying it in the same way that you would a scarf. Exactly. You're using the person's own weight of their head and then the underneath to keep the mouth closed. Right. So if you were to like elevate the head a little Mm -hmm. bit on a pillow and then have the rolled towel underneath. And again, you just keep these in place for, you know, a matter of two to three hours and then remove them. Right. Yeah. You don't have to keep these on. And, and that's why I think it is important to try and do all these before the rigor mortis sets in again, because Mm -hmm. you're taking care of it and you don't have to worry about it again. But it is hard to try and break down the rigor mortis if you have to. It is possible. You have to be very strong about it in order to uh, really manipulate those limbs at that point. Right. It's when you die, your muscles relax. What rigor mortis is, is your muscles tensing back up again. And so mm-hmm. it's it's like having to give the body a heavy-duty massage to break down those muscles and to loosen them up. So. I recommend the towel method or, or the scarf method. If you can do those. We did the scarf with my dad and I think I left it in place overnight. Cause it was kind of late at night when, when he died and, and we finished this, but in the morning, my mom said, can we take that off? I don't like the way it looks, <laughs> you know, absolutely. And then we took it off and, and that's when we took care of his hair. He wore his hair long. So we were able to brush it and braid it at that point, shave his cheeks, all of these things that even though the rigor mortis had already set in, he was, you know, those were things that we could do afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Can we talk about bathing of the body in a situation where the person has died at home on hospice? Often this after death cleansing of the body is really more of a ritualistic symbolic gesture of the last time that the family will have this hands-on experience of caring for their loved one. But sometimes it's also a practical necessity because there has been either some uh, urine or bowels that need to be cleaned up or the person had some sort of trauma. I've had a lot of families ask if you can do a home funeral for somebody who's been to the coroners and had an autopsy. And the answer is yes, but there's going to be a lot more steps because the body is going to be not in the whole state. Like if you died at home, you're going to have incisions that you're going to have to work with, you know, more blood. And depending on the cause of death, if there was accidents, you know, there might be additional things that you'll have to take care of. Um mm-hmm. 
Now, in those instances, I do think it's wise for a home funeral guide to be involved or have a friend who can help by seeing the loved one first. Because, you know, a family doesn't, they may know, okay, he was killed in a car accident. But once they have gone through the autopsy process, there may be more blood. There may be kind of extra I don't want to say like wound care. Yeah. It's like wound care, but sometimes just being the first person to see them and maybe even just do some cleansing of the face, getting any sort of blood or debris off them before inviting the family in. I think that's really useful. I'm not trying to take away, you know, that this death happened or anything like that. I know when I talk about being a funeral director, embalming to me is kind of taking away the reality of death because they want you to look alive. We're adding color to the body. We're adding cosmetics and now they look like they're just sleeping. And a lot of people I've heard don't like that because it looks like they're just going to pop up. Now with death, it's a natural process and the body isn't going to change or be scary. And I think that that's a, a lot of reasons why families appreciate home funerals is because they get to be in the presence of the body after it's, you know, after they've died, it's a slower transition than people. Right, thought. the changes happen, but they're more subtle. Exactly than what we might imagine. But with an accident, there can be, you know, some unpleasant things for the family. And if you can help alleviate that beforehand, um, I think that's really useful. Yeah, but I, I do want to step back to just sort of normal body care. How that ritual process of of bathing the body can be a very healing experience and a very grounding and profound experience for the people involved. I think that the body care is probably one of the most important rituals of a home funeral. And the story I like to tell is, you know, my mom raised me when I was a baby. She gave me baths. She changed all my diapers. When I was hurt, she helped me. And so what an honor to be able to take care of my mom's body one more time, to bathe her, to dress her, to put perfumes on her. Um, I think there's something really healing in that. And it also kind of takes away from that fear, the fear of the body, and to be present in knowing that this body has changed. But you can still hold their hand. You can still paint their fingernails. You can still braid your dad's hair. It gives you that chance to kind of say goodbye to the body and thank the body that held the soul of somebody you love so much. But one thing I think is important is most of the items that you need, you may already have at home, but I do recommend to have some sort of kind of kit is it might be the right word of some washcloths that you can use different bowls I always recommend to have two different bowls, one with clean water and one with dirty water so that you can rinse in between. And then along with the dry ice or the ice packets that you're going to use to also have maybe something to put under the body during all of this. And that could be something as simple as going to the dollar store and getting a shower curtain. Or if you have Chuck's pads or if you have, you know, multiple towels that you can lay under the body. And that just kind of makes the process easier. I had a home birth and for the home birth, I had to kind of have this same checklist. Okay. Make sure you have this many towels on hand. What kind of essential oils would you like to use? 
And so it's really easy to just kind of go, okay, let me have my my checklist ahead of time so that we don't feel like we're rushed or worried to go get these things. Good idea. Yeah. Yeah. So if you could just describe the the process. So bathing the body is a sacred reverent act, right? And we want to keep that in mind. So I talk about, you know, opening the circle to invite people into the sacred space first. I think that's really important. Set your intentions of why we're doing this, who this person is, why we're honoring them this way. Um, And then I always keep the body completely covered unless it's an area we're cleaning. So the head will always be uncovered but you start from the top of the head and you work your way down to the feet and you can say blessings for each part of their body if you'd like, or it can just be a simple, you know, we're, we're bathing you one last time. And if they've been on hospice care, you may have already done this for them before. So it won't be anything foreign, but if it's something you've never done, there might be areas that you're not comfortable with. For example, the genitals, you know, you might not feel comfortable cleaning that area and it's not required. It's not necessary, you know? So if that's not something you don't feel comfortable with, you don't have to do it. Same thing with the reverend body care. I think it's extremely beautiful and a whole huge reason why I love home funerals is having the family have that opportunity. But again, you don't have to do a deep cleansing ritual. If they've died at home and you know that they've been on hospice care and they're, you know, they've been cleaned prior to their death, if that's something you don't want to do, you don't have to do. Um, but I do think that providing that option for yourself and for families is really important. Yeah. We did a ritual bathing of of my father and Afterwards, we we rubbed nice smelling lotion on him as well because we didn't want him to have dry skin. So, you know, these are just ways that we care for the body before and after the death. It's really not too difficult or mysterious. But I love your idea or instruction of keeping the face uncovered, but covering Mm -hmm. the different parts of the body until you're ready to wash them. and you know, it just, it's just out of respect, you know, this body has been a sacred vessel for a long time. And so you want to continue that sacredness. Mm -hmm. Right. I'd like to talk a little bit about dressing a body and how that works. I know there's a few helpful hints that you might be able to share with us because it can be awkward. Yeah, it definitely can. One thing I always start off by recommending is if you have a button up shirt or something really loose fitting or something that the family feels comfortable that you may just be able to cut the back up that you can lay it over their body versus trying to do a full dressing. Um, Of course, if that's what the family wants and they want somebody to be, you know, dressed in a suit from head to toe, but just to make it easier, if you can pick out an outfit ahead of time, and if it's something that even like I said, can have the back cut. So you lay it more over them and then tuck it under versus having to lift their whole body and put it over their body. So if this was a button down shirt, you would actually button it up, just put the sleeves in. Yes. It's cut off the back and then you just sort of tuck that underneath the body. Exactly. It's helpful to have at least two people help in this. One person can, of course, but you know, a a human body weighs a lot, especially 
after they've died, it is it's dead weight. So it's not as easy as as you might think. But yeah, rolling the person towards you to get the one arm in and tuck the shirt under in the back. And then you lay them gently down and then roll them towards the other person to put the second arm on and then tuck the shirt under. Mm hmm. Now, trying to lift somebody up to do the same exact thing, to put a whole shirt on, like I said, is going to be much more difficult. And again, maybe maybe they don't even want to be fully dressed. They want to be shrouded. And so with shrouding a body or wrapping them in the sheet, it's kind of the same thing where you're going to roll the body to one side and put the sheet or shroud underneath half the body if anybody has like a nursing or CNA background, there's a, it's called the, an accordion fold. And it's the way that you just kind of fold the sheet up so that you can lay it under them and then pull it out once they're laid back flat. And then when you roll them towards you again, that half that you already placed underneath is now on the other side of the body and you just pull it out. So at that point you can wrap the body up versus having to lift them place the whole sheet underneath and then do the process of shrouding or wrapping the body. Mm -hmm. And what about pants? So pants is kind of the same thing. The easiest way to do it is where you kind of, gosh, I'm such a visual person. This is really hard, Sarah, to try and describe. I'm like, you scrunch up the pants, right. <laughs> you put the feet in, and then you roll it up the leg. Um, kind of like you would with socks or something. Yeah, yeah. If you've ever put on really long socks, or even women's pantyhose or something, you kind of ruffle them all up. Mm. And then you just put one foot through. And then you're going to lift the whole thing up. And again, if if there's another person there, it's going to be a lot easier. Yeah. The way that you described putting the shirt under and the sheets, that's also a way that you can pick them up and transport them to a different place or, or maybe pick them up out of the bed and put them in the cardboard casket if that's what you're using. But to be able to transfer the body using a sheet, um, like a sling. Exactly. And the best way to do that is to have four people stand on each corner and then you have the sheet spread completely over the bed or the table and then you roll the sheet towards the person and it's also kind of making like a handle for you all to hold on to. So you want to roll that in as close to the body as you can because that's going to give you the most stability and then you'll be able to lift together to transport the body. Right. And I always make sure that someone knows to support the head because the head can be right. really heavy. Right. And it's, you know, just like anything, lifting and moving a body, you need to be very safe. You know, you want to make sure it's people that can lift 50 pounds safely <laughs> and not hurt themselves. The other thing is to always prepare beforehand. You don't want to be trying to move the body and then realize that there's a tight hallway to get through. So having another person there to, you know, help the head and then also make sure there's somebody there to maybe guide and make sure everything was already cleared out of the path and you guys have a, a plan before you transport. Right. Good thinking. I want to mention that if you are planning for a green burial, it's probably smart to select clothing. If, if the person isn't going into a natural fiber shroud, select clothing for the cardboard container or the wooden box that is made of natural fibers, cotton or silk or 
just something biodegradable. Yeah. And shoes, you know, sometimes people want to be in their favorite cowboy boots and it's just another, just another thing to figure out. But the beauty of home funerals is that sometimes within the challenge, you know, as you're figuring it out, it can create a moment of levity and laughter. And I think it does give people more freedom, you know, at the funeral home, families would just kind of look in somebody's closet last minute and bring in an outfit. But when you're in your own home, maybe you can get a little bit more creative of, you know, oh, mom loved these scarves. Let's put all 20 scarves over her body. It's going to look beautiful. Where maybe at the funeral home, that's not something you have time to even think about. So you just grab a dress really quick. I think that there's a lot of freedom to express who that person was with their through their clothing and shoes choices and um, what better place to do it than at home. Absolutely. You've referenced that you've given a lot of home funeral workshops and the things that you talk about um, during these workshops. I wonder if you could describe to us this uh, group that you've created with your friend, Aaron Morelli in Colorado called Death Wives and the work that you guys are working on now. Yeah. So we started Death Wives two years ago. Erin had actually come to one of my home funeral workshops down here five years prior to that. And we stayed in touch, but you know, life was busy and I had a full-time job and I was just kind of educating people when I could and where I could. But she was like, well, let's, let's try to really do this. And so we held live workshops for a year in Denver, just like I had always done. You know, they were six hours, a full day and it was great. But then COVID happened (laughs) and we couldn't do these in-person workshops anymore. And we talked about maybe having just like some online conversations. We were doing free death cafes throughout COVID just to kind of continue the conversations and connections. And we had somebody ask, are you going to teach these classes? And we weren't sure how to convert that into the Zoom kind of setting because a lot of, for me, home funeral care was hands-on. But then we started kind of changing the information and making it easier to put over Zoom. And so we started, we took our classes and kind of broke them up into smaller classes, two two hour Zoom classes. So you would get all the information that you need to have a home funeral. And we would just email a lot of the paperwork. We email a video of what it looks like to maybe transport the body or what the body care looks like. And then everything else was interactive over Zoom like this. And that's wonderful. Good for you for adapting it like that. Well, the coolest part is when we were teaching here, it was mainly Coloradans, you know, it was mainly local people. But then when we put all of our education through Zoom, we were getting people from all over. And that has been probably the most exciting thing for me is because everywhere people are wanting to know this information. They want to know about death doulas. They want to know about home funerals. They want to know about green final disposition options. And so to be able to educate on a broad spectrum, and it's not just people who are interested in becoming death professionals. They might be interested in just doing this one time for their family. They might be taking our class because they have a fear of death that they're trying to you know, work through. Especially during COVID, we've had a lot of people kind of come out 
and say, I, I didn't get to be with my loved one. I want to know how I can help serve other people. I started thinking about my death and I don't really know what I want. So I'm going to learn. I mean, we teach a class on how to plan your own funeral and that class would sell out every time because these conversations are becoming more relevant more than ever. And then putting it on an accessible zoom call makes it so anybody anywhere can take these classes. And so that's really where our focus is now before it was really Colorado collaborative of death workers, local education, but now we're educating anybody anywhere. We always say our table is open to everyone. So if you want to be a death worker, come on down. If you want to help your one family member, come on down. If you're just curious because you read an article about it, we'll show you more. (laughs) That's really great. So um, the the website is deathwives.org. Is there anything else that you'd like to add to wrap it up? Is there something that you feel is kind of your basic take-home message? I guess for me, I, I think it's mainly about choice, letting people know what their choices are. Yeah. And that's what got me into this is because I didn't know about all the choices as a funeral director, as a traditional funeral director. And I want families to feel empowered. And I want families to do what's right for them. We live such different, unique lives. And I never expect everybody in America to all of a sudden say, oh, we only do home funerals. But it's an option for families who do want that or who don't realize that that's an option. And maybe they missed out on doing that for one family member, but now they get to do that for somebody else. And I've never had anybody that I know of have a poor home funeral experience but I've had multiple people have poor experiences at a funeral home. And I think it's just because you can make it so personal and it's in a safe environment where you feel the love, whether it's at the person's home or if it's at your own home, it gives you space and time that a funeral home can't give you. And I think that that's really important. Just returning that act of time and love and the space to do those things I think can change the way that we deal with death and grief in America in general. So that's why I do what I do. There's my elevator speech on home funerals for you. (laughs) Well, thank you so, so much, Lauren. I really appreciate all of the knowledge that you've shared with us and just, you know, it's, it's a delight to be a colleague of yours. (laughs) I know it's been so nice seeing you. I do always reference the national home funeral Alliance because It is a resource of so much education and all the laws and rules and regulations. It's kind of just this library that you can go to. Truly. I mean, in preparation for our talk today, I went there and I want to point out the home funeral tab and the resources tab are full of all of this information, everything that Lauren and I have covered and more. So definitely check out the website. A Path Home is a production of the National Home Funeral Alliance, a nonprofit organization dedicated to educating and advocating for communities and families who choose to care for their own loved ones at death. Check out our website at homefuneralalliance.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to tell a friend and subscribe and review wherever you get your podcasts. If you would like to share your home funeral or natural burial experience on the podcast, 
please email me at podcast at homefuneralalliance.org. We'd love to hear from you. The music at the beginning and end of A Path Home is written and performed by Sarah Cruz. Our beautiful cover art is by Linda Carre. And until next time, remember the words of Ram Das. We are all walking each other home. I want to be there to walk you home. I'll tend to your body. You'll tend to my soul. And if it happens,